Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as 12-Tone. And today we're going to do something, I think, a little different uh, than what we normally do, because you, Noah, recently released a video about like what makes a song great and looking at different ideas of the greatest song. I thought it was really interesting, and I just wanted to pick your brain. So yeah, I guess to start off, do you want to Describe a little bit about what you did and what you were thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the thought process kind of came from, I think it's pretty normal for anyone that does what we do to have the thought of what is the greatest song sort of circling around our head. And you know that it was sort of like, I've had various times throughout my career doing this where I've like, I'm like, I'm going to make a video on this song, which I think, you know, has a strong case for being the greatest song. And then I don't and it flutters away. You know, I was having one of these ideas again. And then I sort of started to think, well, you know, what would be way more interesting than just sort of asking what I currently think the greatest song is, is sort of looking at every song that other organizations had deemed the greatest and seeing if I could find any sort of trends in that. So what I ended up doing was getting my research assistant, Matt, to sort of dig in. And together we found, I think it ended up being 27 different songs from like 32 different publications. And in the spreadsheet, we actually, there's some stuff that didn't make the cut of the video where I had some sort of genre specific songs and stuff like that. But but mostly it was just sort of a comprehensive overview of every published greatest song list that we could find. I looked for, you know, which song they declared their number one. And then I sort of did a video just analyzing, talking about trends and kind of figuring out, trying to pinpoint what is it that we as a culture kind of consider to be great music and how do we think of great songs? Right. And I think a thing that definitely struck me there and a a thing that you acknowledged and I think is a really important caveat is maybe the wrong word, but like qualification, asterisk on the thing is that, you know, you and I are both in this sort of rock space and we're also like English speakers primarily. The English speaking rock press has a particular fascination with this idea of the greatest song of all time in a way that you don't always see in other genres. And so I, I think that that, you know, partly I think that there is, it reflects a cultural bias towards rock in sort of mainstream music discourse among mainstream music critics. Again, it reflects a bias within rock to ask this question. I was just going to say, like, I think that's one of the sort of like big things for me is kind of the the earliest list we could find was NME, which is a pretty big rock publication. The most famous ones are like Rolling Stone. Like, I think they're broadly sort of rock and everything kind of that's come from rock, like is as far as I could tell, sort of that rock press is where this sort of, you know, music ranking, music lists, music comparison, where this this kind of like meme, for lack of a better word, was birthed out of that style of press for whatever reason. You know, I'm sure you could probably dig into it and find cultural reasons, but yeah. But yeah, and I think, you know, you see similar conversations from what I've seen a lot in hip hop, but they tend to be more who is the greatest rapper Yeah, well, instead of what is the greatest like individual song. And I think the other thing too, that's interesting. There's a certain bias where I think that the hip hop lists tend to be like, 
even if they do do what is the greatest song, they tend to think like what is the greatest rap song. Whereas there's almost this like yeah. presumption in a lot of rock lists or lists that are mostly rock uh, that, you know, the greatest rock song is by default the greatest song. Yeah, that there, there's this sort of lack of specificity because the assumption is that, you know, if, if you were to ask what is the greatest rock song and what is the greatest song, you get the same answer. Yeah. And this, this is, you know, we, we see this a lot, like you and I will talk about this in the classical world where like we ask like, who is the greatest composer of all time? People like John Lennon and Paul McCartney don't enter the conversation because it's, you know, it's Beethoven, it's Bach, it's Mozart. It's, it's that set of people. It's, there, there's this idea that when you say this without qualification, there is an implied genre yeah. in a way that isn't actually true, but is sort of, again, reflects culture and reflects a lot of how we as a culture think about rock as opposed to how we think about music in general, but also just how rock culture thinks about itself. Yes. And th yeah. this, I think, ties into some other stuff we've talked about, like this, the, the rock is dead uh, concept. Uh, which, again, both of us would say pretty clearly, no, it's not. Yeah. But I think a lot of that also comes from the idea that the natural state of things is for rock to be the dominant music. Uh -huh. And that this is what music is supposed to look like. And again, it very much resembles the way a lot of classical crowds think about classical music. In that, you know, as, again, especially in academic circles, there's this, you know, I, I think less so these days. This is something that a lot of academic music theorists and musicologists have been pushing to change. But there's this sort of baseline assumption that if you want to learn music, you should learn to appreciate and understand classical music first, because that gives you the basic underpinnings that all music is built on, which, yeah, <laughs> no, but that's sort of the idea. And I think similarly, there's this idea in rock that, you know, other styles that have happened since and even other styles that happened before we're building to rock yeah. and other styles that happened before we're building from rock. And so therefore rock is sort of the center of that musical universe in a way that is a historical. Yes. But is a central concept. And that, that I think was one of the most interesting things about the list that you generated for me was that like, I don't think a disproportionate number of people think the greatest song ever recorded or ever made was a rock song. I think there are a lot of people who, if you ask them, would tell you it was a funk song or would tell yeah. you it was a hip hop song or would point to a jazz song or whatever. Or, you know, like musical theater. A lot of people love musical theater. Maybe it's Papa's Blues from Starlight Express. It's probably <laughs> that. Um, if we're being honest with each other, it's probably that one. It's at least something from Starlight Express. We can all yes, agree on yeah, that. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely in Starlight Express. Maybe maybe it's uh, what was, is that called? Freda's Great? Is that the name? Honestly, of Honestly, I could not name. I don't remember. From it. Yeah, you should listen to more Starlight Express. I think that's really the main takeaway that I had from your video is that you should listen to more Starlight is, Express. There's an appalling lack of Starlight Express represented yeah. on it. <laughs> yeah, like you did. You didn't even mention "Make Up My Heart." <laughs> which is the number one greatest song ever called Make Up My Heart in Starlight Express. Absolute top of that list. So just journalistic malpractice there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But anyway, what was my point? My point was that I think that a lot of people would point to these other genres, would point to other songs, but that, again, like you say, the lists that those are on top of are going to be genre-specific because most genres as... 
I don't want to say self-absorbed. That's not fair. Self-mythologizing, maybe? So, yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, self-mythologizing is rock. I think that there's, and this is something like I'm, this is a tangent, but this is something that related to the, the video I'm currently working on, which I actually don't know if it's going to be out by the time this episode comes out. So I will, uh, I think it will, but I won't go into too much detail. But this is the thing I talk about there is just sort of like, and so it's a thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is this sort of canonization of rock and this crystallization especially the 70s. That was, I think, a big thing is like, you know, especially I, I say the 70s. Late 60s yeah. through sort yeah. of late 70s. Yeah, yeah. What, I, what I would call sort of the long 1970s. Like this is a thing historians do sometimes for fun where they just say the long like 17th century or whatever. And they just define yeah. dates before and after. And like, this is the real cultural moment. It just mostly, so like the long 1970s, I would say is sort of, you know, the rise of psychedelic rock to the release of the DX7. Like if you take yeah. that time period, that is extremely the golden age of rock in a very mythological way. And correct me if I'm wrong, I didn't look at your spreadsheet, but based on the songs you were naming, it sure sounded like a lot of them came out in that time span. Yeah, I mean, I've got the spreadsheet here. Like I can tell you the ones that are sort of outside of that Timeline were Over the Rainbow, The Twist, yeah. which even arguably, I mean, The Twist is 1960, but it is, it yeah. it's like right on the verge of the rock era. Strange Fruit by yeah. Billie Holiday. And then the few later, there was a handful of later ones like Mr. Brightside, Blinding Lights, uh, which I thought that was really interesting that something so yeah. sort of recent was on the uh yeah. was on the list that was on billboard's greatest all-time hot 100 songs so that also might just be a reflection of the fact that it is the yeah. most successful billboard single of all time and that that also yeah. has to do with sort of pandemic reasons because it was kind of it was on yep. the top of the charts when the pandemic hit so it was sort of a lot of people stopped releasing music so it sort of stayed in the zeitgeist for longer than it might have otherwise i mean it's also a great pop song like it is yeah. i don't think it's undeserving of being in those conversations there was a massive attack song there was a couple but yeah the vast vast majority uh were basically between like 1965 and 1983 yeah yeah and that that doesn't surprise me at all and like even even with the blinding lights like there's an extent to which Hot 100 is just a measure, but I think it's also fair to say that Hot 100 is a genre. Yes, totally. And so if it's looking at, you know, the greatest Hot 100 songs, there's an extent to which that is still a genre-specific yeah. list. Not, like, enough... Like, I'm not calling your methodology into question here, but, like, that is definitely perhaps part of the reason yeah. that it wasn't so much thinking about Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know. yeah. And and that's something that I was like sort of fully expecting kind of going into this. Yeah. I think I think I was a little I mean, I guess the one that's like sort of outside of that like 60s and 70s thing that was on the most lists was Smells Like Teen Spirit. But again, that's still that's sort of been adopted. Nirvana have been adopted into yeah. the classic rock canon, which is kind yeah. of funny because like they sort of came up as an entire response to the indulgences of that genre. Like their whole sort of shtick was a response to that, but they've been adopted into that sort of, you know, you'll hear them on the radio next to Led Zeppelin all the time now. Yeah, no, that I think sort of reflects 
to my mind, this thing that you see very much in rock culture, where like I was talking like the long 1970s are very much, you know, the golden age of rock. But there's this clear narrative that like, I guess the short 1990s, so like from 91 to, I don't know, like 98 or whatever, yeah, is the Silver Age. This is the revival after of like true rock ideals after the 80s just went completely off the rails, uh, which I, I don't think is what happened to 80s rock. I have more complicated feelings about 80s rock than that. Yeah. But that is very much the narrative is like, you know, starting with the British invasion, like, you know, you, you go far enough back, you have like the original like rock and roll rockabilly crowd but like you know the myth of rock i think really is like british invasion yeah going up into like 70s rock which was the pinnacle that was where everyone made the best music yeah and then the 1980s we sort of lost our way and we're just doing too much and doing weird nonsense and then the 1990s was like grunge was like no we're doing good rock again yeah and then starting in the late 90s early 2000s things just went downhill forever rock just disappeared yeah is yeah, and rock died in uh, 1998. That was the last <laughs> time anyone made rock music. So yeah, as a collection of songs, like I do think, you you know, even the ones that fall outside of this period, like your Johnny Be Good, your The Twist, your stuff like that. I do think, as yeah. a collection of songs, all of these really do sort of underline the grand narrative of that rock mythology. Like you get your Bob Dylan, your Beatles, your Nirvana, your Zeppelin, even Michael Jackson's on there, which, uh, you know, he's clearly not rock, but he's also very much like influenced by the rock milieu and sort of like accepted in a lot of those same canons. Yeah, he's he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes, exactly. Like, I would not claim Michael Jackson to be a rock artist. I would say he made some songs that are very clearly influenced by rock. Beat It being probably the most obvious example. He is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and so rock has claimed him mythologically, even if that's not entirely accurate. But like you, you mentioned Johnny B. Good, and I think that's a really interesting thing on sort of the rock mythology question, which we will eventually move on from, I'm sure. But I I just have a lot of thoughts about this, and it seems like you do too. And one of the things that, I have seen talked about in sort of the rock mythology space is the idea that our understanding of 60s rock and roll is very much shaped through the lens of 70s rock. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is part of why someone like Chuck Berry becomes a much more, or even like Elvis becomes a much more central figure than someone like Lil Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis, because those were piano players. Yeah. And in the 70s, rock was guitars. Yes. And so there's, again, this sort of idea that the music before rock, like the golden age of rock was building to that. You sort of get this sort of sweeping under the rug a little bit of these parts of the rock and roll movement. And even, you know, you look at doo-wop. Doo-wop was rock and roll. Like Oh, yeah. Doo-wop was enormous. Yeah enormous and like it, it was considered part of that tradition and then very clearly once 70s rock happened that was not rock anymore. yeah like that that didn't count but it was still very much rock and roll speaking to that especially with johnny be good it's very interesting that the the sort of like narrative you know like the like back to the future and yeah. the sort of cultural narrative there's an argument that's made of Johnny B. Good being sort of the first rock song. And like 
Johnny B. Good came out like six years after something like, you know, Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog or even Elvis's That's All yeah. Right. Like, it's still a huge landmark recording, but it's it's coming out in 58. A lot of the sort of, yeah, your That's All Right or your Rocket 88s or a lot of these like early sort of first rock songs songs are in the yeah. early to mid 50s. So it's kind of funny that it's it's got this reputation as being you know, the first rock song when in reality, like it's, it's a seminal, absolutely seminal recording, yeah. but it's one that co has come out, you know, a lot further after a lot of people sort of yeah. might think than, than the kind of beginnings of rock. Yeah. But it makes a really good story. Yes. If it's Johnny B. Good. Yeah. And that I think is a really important part of it. And that I think is what you see a lot in, and part of what is, what is interesting about these sort of like greatest song lists is that they are so much more yeah. about making a story. You said at the beginning, like that people who do our sorts of work will find themselves drawn to like making videos. Like what is the greatest song? I don't know. I like, I personally, from a very personal perspective, without considering cultural implication, I never really have like, oh, I, yeah. that's never really been how I think about music. And like, I don't, I could not tell you what I think the greatest song is. I could barely give you an answer for what my favorite song is. We've established it's something from Starlight like, Express. It's something from Starlight <laughs> Express, but there are like 20 songs in that show. So, uh, but yeah, like, and I, I think honestly, a lot of people feel that way. Like they may not necessarily feel that way actively, but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have something that they can point to yeah. as a personal greatest song ever. And I think that a lot of what you see when you have those discussions is sort of, again, the, the act of canon. Yeah. Like the act of declaring, of looking at the cultural concept of who the greatest song, what the greatest song is, who the greatest songwriter is, all of these. And that when you look at lists like, you know, the Rolling Stone list, for instance, or really any of these, it's almost exclusively a question of like what songs are culturally important and have interesting stories as opposed to like, what are the songs that we have decided we like the best? Well, I think maybe that speaks to, and maybe sort of my kind of inclination to this also just generally speaks to the journalistic impulse, right? Like yeah, my background's in journalism. I consider a lot of what I do journalism and it is very much about finding stories. And I, I think that in my mind with a lot of this stuff, and I think for a lot of the people that write this stuff, I think, you know, a, a song having a good story about it is genuinely an aspect of greatness. You know, like that, that is yeah. a perfectly sort of like valid criterion for what makes a song great is a song that has a great story to it and has an important story to it. And I think that's why you see, you know, things like, things like Strange Fruit on there. Strange Fruit is such an interesting one there too, because it's, it's by, Time Magazine, put it as that, yeah. right? And like, that's, you know, a, a pretty serious journalistic institution. The story of Strange Fruit, whether sort of true or not, is that Billie Holiday kicked off the civil rights movement when she recorded that. Yeah. And the truth is, there were a lot of things that kicked off the civil, civil rights movement. Yeah. Strange Fruit definitely was an enormous cultural part of the civil rights movement. But, you know, giving yeah. one song credit for kicking off the civil rights movement, I think sort of undermines the work that generations of activists, you know, and organizers did. Yeah. But it is, yeah. it's a compelling story, right? It is a compelling yeah. narrative. And even if it didn't kick off the civil rights movement, it 
sort of became a symbol of the early stages of the civil rights movement, the same way that something like a change is going to come became the sort of enduring symbol of the later civil rights or middle stage. I don't know the 60s stage of the civil rights movement. Yeah. I just, by the way, looked at my calendar and noticed, uh, confirmed that the video I'm working on right now will be out by the time this episode is. So I can talk about what it's about yeah. because I really want to right now. <laughs> I'm making a video about now and then. Okay. The new Beatles song yeah, yeah. for anyone who's not familiar. Uh, I, I know you know, but <laughs> This podcast does have listeners, Noah. So. I try not to remember that. <laughs> yeah, I do my best. It's easier to have fun conversations if I'm not yeah. trying to make content. <laughs> it's an interesting song. Like, it's a well-written song. It seems like that's almost kind of irrelevant to what's happening with it. And it is so much a story yes. that has a song attached. Yeah. And we are, I think, right now in the process of witnessing that mythologizing and that narrativizing and this becoming an important cultural object in ways that, you know, we, we're sort of, we're living through right now. And it's very self-aware too, because, you know, it's the Beatles. And yeah, so this is, this is not, you know, looking back and being like, oh, that song turned out to be important. It's like people looking at this and being like, this is important. Let's figure out how. Yeah. It's a really interesting cultural moment to be in right now. It's one where, you know, five years from now, if you do that same study again, I would not be surprised to find at least one list that had Now and Then at the top. Not because I think it's the greatest song ever, not because I think it's even the greatest song the Beatles made, but because it has this clear cultural resonance in this exact moment that ties in so well to this long history of rock mythology. And I think that that sort of speaks to something that I talked about a lot in the video, which is the ways that you see songs kind of lists like the Rolling Stone one, which has sort of, you know, multiple lists over the years, you can see the changing values of the narratives being told. Like a big one for me is something that in my lifetime, you know, I have seen the sort of discourse around Aretha Franklin's respect shift from, you know, it's not that people like ignored it or said it was a bad song. People always said it was a great no. song, but it has fully shifted to take the forefront of it was the top of the latest Rolling Stone list, right? Like yeah. it is, you know, it's now sort of in the cultural canon up there with your like a Rolling Stone or Stairway to Heaven or something like that. And I think that that is sort of a big reflection of changing cultural narrative because yeah. You know, we we live in a time where there are a lot more movements of feminism and black power. And this song, yeah. you know, trailblazes a lot of those things. And so it fits well into this sort of narrative uh, of how we like to view kind of music right now. Yeah, I completely agree. And like, I think, like, I want to stress, and I know this is, I, I think you were emphasizing this as well, but like just to be perfectly clear, none of this is to say that respect doesn't deserve that. Yes. Oh, totally. It, it is yeah. a phenomenal song. It is a hugely culturally important song. And I agree with you that I say I agree with you. I don't want to put words in your mouth. It seems to me that part of that decision was likely, again, like you say, a response to cultural conversations and a desire to maybe not have the top spot be a white man. Yes. And then exactly. that's that it's I say that it's so easy to say that as if it's a bad thing. I genuinely don't think it is. I think a big factor sort of to consider with this stuff is I yeah. think it is good that we are reevaluating what our idea of greatness is like. This is something that, 
you know, I, I know you agree with and I really wanted to hammer home in the video is I don't think there's any objective great song. I think yeah. what we consider great is a reflection of our values. So I think a world where, you know, people are more eager to put a black woman singing a feminist anthem as number one is a good reflection of progress being made in the world. Yeah, I also don't want to veer too far the other way and be like, you know, Rolling Stone are now progressive yes, icons yeah, yeah. <laughs> for this choice. Like that, no. But yeah, I think that the fact that they decided that on this particular, at this particular moment in history, Respect was a more important song to put at the top than what has historically been there, which is like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. I think that reflects good cultural changes. Yeah. Well, even if, you know, I, I don't want to say bad things about like a Rolling Stone by Bob Dylan. It's you not, better not my thing, but I know it's yours. <laughs> well, and it's even like in Rolling Stone, you can see that mandate also reflected in their albums list as well. Right. Where yeah. what's going on was sort of named when they redid their list, their their greatest album. And what's going on is a great album. You know, I, again, don't think yeah. it's undeserving of that slot, but there is definitely like motive there, you know? Yeah. There is motive in any greatest list, you know, like any yeah. of these greatest yeah. lists. Part of the reason why they're so interesting to me is is exactly that. It is the way that they, yeah. you know, reinforce cultural narratives and the way that they create and yeah, the way that they create canon. And yeah, like the choice to put Aretha Franklin's respect at number one was in part a political choice. Yes. But so was the choice to put like a Rolling Stone. Exactly. And so was every every one of these choices. And that I think is important to stress is that like, exactly. It's so easy in this space to sort of be like, oh, Rolling Stone caved to woke pressure yeah. and put an absolutely amazing banger of a song at number one. Yeah. But an amazing banger of a song that happened to be written by, I, I say happy, like it's important that it was written by, uh, written by uh, Otis Redding. Yeah. And then popularized and translated and given fundamentally new meaning by Aretha Franklin. Like, I would even argue that, you know, like she and her sisters yeah. should have, should probably have co-writing credit on that. Cause so much of her version, like the spelling out the socket to me, yeah. like her arrangement is it significantly deviates yeah. from Otis Redding's. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, just, yeah, just in a technical sense, I didn't want to say right, yeah. but that's not entirely correct. Yeah. But it, very much, it is her work of art. Yes. And I, I think that that was the choice they made for reasons that partly had to do, again, with the cultural significance of it and the cultural impact of it, but is also just a stone-cold banger. Yes, exactly. Like, whatever else that song is, yeah, it's great. But yeah, so that, that I think... Uh, yeah, I just want to be emphasize that. And also, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about in. And I, I think it puts a lot of this into context to view all of these decisions as motivated. Yeah, because they are. And again, that's, I think, an important part of like a thing you brought up that I thought was really interesting in your video was that a lot of the more recent ones came not from like journalists writing yeah. lists, but from listener polls, where I think that is is yeah. probably a better reflection of that particular set of listeners' personal tastes. And, like, there's there's even sort of, like, going back to Blinding Lights, like, there's an argument of Hot 100 as its own genre. There's also an argument of Hot 100 as a, you know, the longest-going listener poll yeah. in music history, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, like, a lot of these are sort of less necessarily reflective of cultural importance uh, which is not to say that these songs are not like, like I think 
it's fair to say that Mr. Brightside is culturally important. I thought it was really interesting to see Mr. Brightside there. Uh, that was one that I, I sort of yeah. didn't expect. I mean, I think it was just sort of surprising for me to see something yeah. that had come out in my lifetime sort of get yeah. that. But I also, I think it also just means I'm old now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, clearly that means you didn't watch my video about Mr. Brightside because yes. I did mention that. But I might have watched it and then just purged it from my brain. I do do that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do that all the time. I'm not actually offended. I thought on the other listener poll thing, the other thing that's interesting to me, the other one, like in 1998, Massive Attack's Unfinished Sympathy won a BBC Best Tracks Ever vote. I had yeah. never heard that song in my life. And I thought that was really interesting. I, yeah, I I don't know that song. Yeah, like I, I saw that. I meant to look that up before we started recording, and then I got sidetracked with writing. Yeah, and yeah, script writing and all of that, and research, and so I never actually got around to it. But yeah, I have never heard that song. Yeah, I gave it a listen. Like it's a it's a good song. It's a good sort of trip hop song, and I th I think it's very interesting that like it's a British poll in. 1998 uh that votes a trip hop song as the greatest of all time and i think that's really interesting because that's like like trip hop was very big and electronic music yeah. was very exciting yeah in britain in the late 90s like i think for a lot of a lot of people sort of in and around that movement i think they might be surprised you know 25 30 years on how little of an impact it actually sort of has in the broader cultural canon but like that movement was enormous and exciting and there was a lot of like really sort of great artists kind of working in that sort of you know trip hop yeah. electronic milieu yeah but i think that's it's an interesting point about how like little space it occupies in the cultural canon these days because i think that that's really true of pretty much everything that happened after 1995, but before roughly now. I would say outside of uh, hip-hop. I think there's, yeah. yeah. Outside of hip-hop, yes. So I, I was I was doing the thing we talked about earlier where I sort of centered around rock. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, the, the, but I, th I think a lot of that, because this, this is the thing I think about a lot, is sort of the extent to which the 70s have become crystallized as the greatest era of music uh, with rock in parentheses, but you, you don't yeah. say the parenthetical part out loud, <laughs> has sort of stopped cultural reevaluations of a lot of things that have happened since. Yeah. I, th I think the 80s are starting to get a cultural reevaluation these days. I think that is beginning to happen. But I think for a long time, it was very frozen as the thing that happened after the 70s. And then I think, you know, the 90s. And then I think after the 90s, so much of this just, like, new metal. New metal came and went, like... I still love it, but I think right now new metal is actually getting a huge reevaluation in the culture. Gen Z, it's interesting. I mean, it's similar yeah. to like, you yeah. know, you and I grew up with our parents listening to Steely Dan or Jackson Brown or these kinds of things, right? Whereas yeah. like like Gen Z who are now coming of age and starting to dictate some of this cultural discourse, a lot of them grew up with their parents listening to Slipknot or, you know, Rob Zombie, right? Yeah. Like, like, and because of that, yeah. and then the other one that's happening too with them that's huge is emo is getting a big comeback right yeah. now. And both of those, I think it's very similar. It's it's similar to to those younger generations. That means the same as sort of like 
I don't know. I, I, I guess like emo to a Gen Z means the same as like Nirvana to me, you know? I, I think that ties into what I was saying about the 80s and how that's yeah. getting reevaluated as well, too, is I think that that I, I think that there was just a long cultural pause on the idea of developing new culture almost. Yeah. Like that this was sort of especially certainly in music. I think that there was this long period where we really didn't reevaluate how all of these things fit together and our relationships to them. And I think part of what we're seeing is that, you know, that glacier is starting to come apart. Like yeah. there's this, I, I think a lot of that is like you say, Gen Z is just so far removed from the seventies that the narrative of that isn't relatable anymore. And it's starting and there's, like, you're starting to see all of these reevaluations happening now. I also think one of the big things that has happened is basically like when we were growing up, you know, a lot of the cultural discourse around music was still driven by radio stations, right? And yeah. classic rock as a format proved to be one of the most successful radio station formats, probably, again, because a lot of the modern ideas of radio were born out of 70s album-oriented radio, right? So I think that yeah. a lot of these classic rock stations kind of centralized and canonized this 70s stuff. And nowadays, you know, I, I mean, I'm old, so I still like listening to radio, but most people are just discovering this stuff on their own through discovery algorithms and stuff like that. And without sort of the context, you know, of yeah. your, your, you know, nothing but rock, the greatest hits you've ever heard, 1084 rock and rock rock you know there there's yeah there's a lot more room for people to listen to these albums and be like hey actually limp biscuit really kind of rule you know yeah yeah they did a great job with behind blue eyes <laughs> uh but no like i remember like as a kid and this was like you know i was going to school like i uh, would carpool with some other folks who lived near us and my, my dad was driving one day and it sort of like waved got all our attention and was like yeah, you you all should listen to this. This is like one of the most important pieces of music in rock. And it was Shine On You Crazy Diamond, which like, yeah. you know, fair. He's not wrong. But also that sort of, like you say, establishes a context to this. And I think that, again, what, what I think happened is that for a long time, that context sort of froze. Not, not entirely, like music was still happening. Yes. There were still musical movements going on, but I think they faded out pretty quickly and they sort of felt, in hindsight, disposable. Yeah. In a way that, you know, and partly because of this canonization of the long 1970s, you had this, like, you know, like, sure, the kids are listening to Linkin Park and it's that's cool, but, you know, that's, it's not Led Zeppelin, right? It's not, it's not Pink Floyd. And so, yeah, it's not going to last. And one of the things, too, that's sort of like paired with that again on the radio thing is around that time in the early 2000s, basically all of the radio stations, like there was a massive consolidation, right? And big conglomerates yeah. started buying these things up. And, you know, whereas before, you know, if we're looking at something like trip hop or new metal, there might actually be, you know, an interesting station that's playing a lot of new metal to a small but loyal crowd and that sort of does that cultural canonization now it's being bought up by these bigger and bigger conglomerates and they're like no that doesn't 
sell well, that doesn't perform well. What performs well is, you know, Pink Floyd or whatever. Yeah. And so then, you know, it sort of drives these other things to the fringes just by virtue of the money is behind the stuff that has been canonized as, you know, easy wins yeah. stuff that people know will sell. And I think that that's one of the big things that happened. And I mean, it's one of the big reasons why radio kind of sucks now, right? And like I said, I think we're at such an interesting cultural moment around to sort of go back to the greatest song project. Yeah. Like, I would be really interested to see what changes if you do that again 10 yeah. years from now. Yeah. Because it really feels like we are at an inflection point where we're overdue for reevaluation and And not only that, like I think I think the discussion of like ranking stuff and lists and greatest and stuff like that has a permeation in the culture that it's never had before, right? Like the number of yeah. zoomers that I know who are music fans who are like obsessed with rate your music, right? And like these sorts of yeah. uh, aggregate sites where you're rating stuff, which is cool. It's a fun way to interact with music. Yeah. We've we've done an episode on it before. Um, but I think it's I think it you're completely right that I, I I also think if you you know in ten years if I looked there's probably going to be way more lists of these right where already like yeah. so many of the lists it's kind of wild of all the lists that we could find. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. So over half of the lists that we could find have been published since 2020. Huh. Or are sort of on sites that are kind of like constantly updating, like yeah, Ranker like, and like stuff Ranker, like that. But if yeah. you were looking at, yeah. If you're looking at the current ranking, then that is still, I, I would say, published yeah. in 2020. Well, I would say published in 2023. Yes, but exactly. I started that sentence weird, and now here we are. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, like, I guess a really interesting cultural moment where you're starting to see that happen, but you're still very much starting, still very much seeing sort of the old guard attitude. Yeah. And, you know, seeing how that evolves. It seems like it is. It seems like that's changing. It seems like 10 years from now... The idea, you know, Stairway to Heaven, that will probably be at the top of some people's lists still. I think that's one of the things that's really yeah. interesting for me to see kind of going on right now is it's it's really interesting to look at which songs are continuing their reign at the top and which artists yeah. are, you know, sort of losing some of the cultural cachet and stuff like that. Because, like, yeah. you know, an act like Pink Floyd, I think they still hold a lot of cultural power. Uh, but someone like, I don't know, someone like Aerosmith, who I I think, I, I don't know if, you know, they top that many lists, but I'm sure Dream On is pretty high on some of these lists or stuff like that. Like, I don't think yeah. Aerosmith has any cultural purchase at all with younger generations now. You know, I, th I think there's, yeah. a, there's definitely a filtering that's happening. Yeah, and that I think is good and natural. Yeah. Like, I think that that's, and, you know, a, a filtering and also... Like, because that, that just implies moving down. But I think, you know, there's also an unearthing. Yes, right? like, totally. I mean, we talked about Aretha Franklin, where, like, I, I think that that has very much gone through a reevaluation. And it's not, like you say, it's not like it was an, a, a deep cut that no one knew about. And finally, someone figured out that Aretha Franklin's respect was good. But, like, this filtering also brings up bands that, you know, people may not have been as familiar with. Yeah. That are people start, are starting to realize, oh, these are actually really important or really good. 
And and even like bands that people sort of know about, like there's been a huge sort of reevaluation of Talking Heads or Steely Dan even. Yeah. Like a lot of these bands are and and you know it's it's an interesting thing too cuz this actually just sort of brings up a thought that I think is only tangentially related to this but this is ghost notes but like something that you see happen has happened in our lifetime like like I bet you Kate Bush's running up that hill will appear very high on some of these lists in the next 10 years when it probably would not have graced them before but it had a cultural moment and that cultural moment like, like, that's not yeah. to say people are only latching onto it because of Stranger Things. That's to say that people, Stranger Things showed people that this is a really great song. And then it had an enormous cultural moment that, again, had people reevaluating and realizing, oh, you know, this is this song, you know, is is a really brilliant piece of music. And I think that that's something that I think it's just sort of from purely like, you know, a music fan who's in officially in my 30s now. Like, I, I think it's just something cool to happen to see happen because I, I do think it's kind of just the the natural life cycle of these things. I've just never really witnessed it before. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and again, I, I think it, it is. And but also the natural life cycle goes through cycles. Yes. Like this is this is very much a thing that has changed a lot over history. Like what we do with music as it gets older. Like this is uh, God, I forget who it was, but it was some like 16th century monk slash music critic, whatever, who was writing basically. You know, they, there was no reason to listen to music that was written more than 40 years ago. Yeah, that, that this was a, a popular idea at the time, and that we saw. And I've talked about this a bunch on the channel, but like, or on, on the podcast and my channel, more on the podcast. But like, yeah, we saw in like the 1800s, this real, this shift towards valuing old music and valuing music because it was old and because it had stood the test of time instead of being something that was new and innovative. Uh, and that that was sort of more the value and those that's where you saw this real reevaluation of Bach. Like yeah. that's not reevaluation of artists is not a new thing. <laughs> like uh and then that sort of crystallized and we saw the classical canon become what it became and blah blah blah. This whole history. I've gone through this a million times. And I'm also not a music historian. I just know this from talking to music historians. Uh but like, you know, you go through all of that and then you go through you know, the jazz era and you go through like the rockabilly era and like there's uh, there's all of these different attitudes towards what should happen to a song after it's released and like what should happen to new music yeah. as opposed to old music and all of this. And so we are, like I said, we are at a point, I think, where that cultural attitude and that, that natural life cycle is evolving again and... Like I said, it's really cool to see. Uh, I still love a lot of that classic 70s yeah. rock. Like that's not that's not to say that we should forget it. Uh, it's certainly not to say that I'm going to forget it. But I think it is also really cool to see this shift towards or see the pendulum swing back towards appreciation of stuff that's, you know, even stuff like a couple decades old, but even like new stuff, like stuff that's being made now, like blinding lights. Yeah. That song came out this decade. 
Uh, was that like 2021? Am I remembering correctly? Yeah, I think so. 2021. Oh, 2019. Yeah, because it was right before the pandemic. Oh, okay. Those very recent songs that these these are things that we are looking at in ways that I don't think we have. Yeah. And whereas like even even back in like the early 2000s with like new metal as like the big rock music, even then there was this attitude of like, yeah, we like this and we're going to keep listening to it. But this is this is not going to last. Yeah, this is not music for the ages. This is music for right now. And we're going to enjoy it now. But in 10 years, it'll still be Stairway to Heaven. Yeah, it's not going to be like before I forget or whatever. I think there's a lot of people that you know, would tell you that sort of artists working now are kind of all-time greats and will be canonized in a way that, yeah, I don't think when we were coming up, people would have said that yeah. about a lot of the artists. Yeah. A lot of the like most popular artists, yeah. even. Like, I don't think a lot of people would have said that about Linkin Park. I don't think yeah. a lot of people would have said that about Blink-182. Like, Yeah, and, and I mean, people certainly wouldn't have said it about someone like... Britney Spears or something like that. Whereas, yeah. I mean, now it's sort of kind of just a given that Beyonce is one of the greatest. Yeah. And I mean, Beyonce has. And Britney. Like there's, you've seen like, recently much more conversation about Britney as an ongoing legacy. Yeah. As opposed to an act that was popular now and was certainly, was definitely going to fade away and no one was going to be talking about her in like the 2020s, of course. But we are. And she deserves it. Yeah. Oh, so absolutely. That's great. Yeah. But like, that's definitely like, I think reflective of that changing attitude that an artist that I, I think even most Britney Spears fans would not have called as being continuing to be an important cultural, yeah. like touchstone this far out from her like heyday. I, I don't think that was even really an idea about what she was going to be long-term and yet she is. And yeah, again, I think that's great. I have very much reevaluated Britney Spears in my adulthood and have a lot more respect for her as an artist. And yeah, I think her work is great. And I think she deserves to be in that conversation in a way that she wasn't when she was a star. But yeah, did you have any other sort of like thoughts or questions or observations that you wanted to? Uh... I, I get the one thing that I like I wanted to ask, and I think we sort of meandered through answers to this uh so it might be a bit repeating yourself but I'd, i'm curious how you would answer this directly is like watching the video a thing that definitely struck me was that i found all of the conclusions from knowing you very predictable yeah like i think that and i, I think you could have predicted the results going in like and your conclusions going in i could have i think most coast notes listeners could have I think a lot of polyphonic viewers even could have. Uh, I don't know why I said even there, but you know what I mean. I mean, they um, are uh, polyphonic viewers do lag a little behind Ghost Notes listeners. Yeah, in terms of intellectual yeah. capacity. But no, like, <laughs> well, I, I, yes. Yeah, Ghost Notes listeners are the smartest and best yep. audience. And that that's certainly true. But also, I, I more meant in terms of like, you're getting a sense of your beliefs as opposed to like the things, because, you know, you, you and I, we talk much more candidly here than we do on our videos. Yes, yeah. And that's, but anyway, my point is, I think any, certainly anyone who has gotten this far in a Ghost Notes episode knew yeah. exactly what was going to happen in that video, knew all of the conclusions you were going to find before you had done the study. Uh, and so I guess I am curious without 
meaning this in any sort of disparaging way, I'm curious what you would say the point of doing the exercise was? I think I was curious to see, I think a lot of it was I was curious to sort of confirm my hypothesis, you know? Like, I I think a lot of my hypotheses were yeah. correct. I think the other thing was also, like, straight up, it just seemed like a fun thing to do, which was yeah. a big motivator. <laughs> Honestly, I was a little surprised because going in, I thought we were going to be able to find more lists you know, I thought we were, I thought there was going to be a lot yeah. bigger of a sample size. And I thought that we could have pulled a bit more sort of like interesting stuff from the sample size, but we only ended up with, you know, like 30 odd songs. And it's, it's really hard to pull that much sort of like yeah. data information from that. I think mostly it was just, it seemed like a fun exercise. And also like, I wanted to, I wanted to see if my, suspicions as to the way that we evaluate songs are right because yeah almost everything that yeah i wound up wound up saying was stuff that i probably would have guessed beforehand but you know it's good to it's good to apply some rigor to the stuff that you're guessing and see if it does sort of stand up yeah and yeah i think the big the big question like that i don't think i ended up having a good answer for is i did I was really hoping that I might be able to come up with a couple sort of clearer, you know, sort of markable criterion that people, yeah. th for, for how we evaluate quality in a song, what I went in assuming yeah. would be, you know, commercial success, uh, sort of like cultural slash historical impact. Those are basically what they were with very yeah. few exceptions. Yeah. Well, a lot of them were also in 4-4. Four, four, so, yes. you know, consider yeah. that. Well, yeah. <laughs> I actually cut a little bit from the script because I didn't actually think it was that interesting to say. But when I talk about, like, I had some stuff about, like, 4-4. Four, four. Most of them are in major key centers. Most are sort of yeah. uh, between a certain amount of time and a certain BPM. And the reality of that is that tells you nothing about greatest songs. That tells you just about the tropes of pop music in the, in the 20th yeah. century. Like I, th that's, yeah. that's sort of, there was one on one of the lists that was, that I didn't end up like cutting on the finest thing. That was a uh, hundred modern classics was what that list was called. That was uh, in, in no time signature, nor key uh, because it was 433. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you can say that's in whatever key you want. Uh, yes, but, exactly. But yeah, I, I straight up really appreciate the bit of naming 433 as the greatest song on uh, on a list. I think that's a solid bit. And yeah. that's the sort of thing yeah. that I would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think that, you know, and there's also like, in addition to like it being good to double check, it's also a much better story if you've double checked. Yes. Exactly. You know, like I, I can sit here and complain about what goes on lists as much as I want, but if, even just gesturing at having data makes it a much more compelling argument. Yeah. I think that was a really good call. I was just, like I said, was curious your thoughts. One of the early visions that I sort of abandoned, but one of the early visions was to try to come up with sort of criterion based on, you know, what all of these things had kind of decided. And then from that, yeah. sort of apply that criterion to w what, 
I think the greatest song right now is, which, as I said in the video, my vote right now is probably Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up. But honestly, like, I realized the criterion for that, like anything that I've put the criterion on, it's just vibes, you know, <laughs> like it's just a song that I think is very good that I'm feeling right now that has some historical relevance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think like, a thing that I think is interesting, and I, I don't say this as any sort of criticism, partly because I don't think you're going to disagree with me at all. Uh, but a thing that I think is really interesting about this as well is, like I said, I could have predicted the results, not because I know greatest hits lists, but because I know you. Yeah. And so I, I think it's interesting because, you know, with any sort of culture, we can we can do data all we want, but any sort of cultural analysis we are very much bringing a perspective yeah. and a frame. Yeah. And like, I think, you know, if you'd showed that exact same list to say Anthony Fantano or Rick Beato, uh, which I'm, I'm not naming either of those names to criticize them either. Uh, but I think they probably would have come to different conclusions. Yeah. And I think they would have had at least different points that they thought were most important to emphasize about the data. And so like, if this is, you know, the classic thing is that any art you make is actually about yourself. And I think that it's, this is a, it's a really interesting reflection on greatest hits and what the greatest song is. I think it's also a really interesting reflection on what that conversation means to uh, Noah Polyphonic. Yeah. Like I said, I, th I think a lot of the conclusions you came to are very similar to the ones I would have come to. Uh, but, you know, that a lot of that is because you and I are very similar, think about a lot of this stuff very similarly. And we have a lot of, you know, we also... Like, I, you have certainly shaped oh, a lot yes. of my views on yeah. a lot of this stuff. Hopefully I have as yeah. well have shaped yours in some way. Yeah, there's a definite influence there on each other's views. And yeah. so that, but like it, it is, and so watching that is also like, you know, partly feels like a reflection of me just because you and I have similar views. Not to say that you were, you know, copying me or anything, but. I did feel as I was writing it that it, it felt a lot like a Ghost Notes episode in its conclusions. <laughs> yeah. Where it was. Uh, completely wishy-washy and said, you know, culture's complicated <laughs> and there's no easy answers. Yeah. yeah, no, and that, like, I thought was, yeah, like I said, that that felt very much like a ghost notes ending. Yeah. Uh, and that that was really interesting. Uh, and again, like, I feel like a lot of it is, because again, we talked, you know, about how m constructing the list is motivated and again, just analyzing the list is motivated. And I think that that's, really important to understand without being in any way, not without in any way taking away from the yes. value of that analysis. Because again, there's no other way to do it. The the view from nowhere does not exist. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's, that's a really yeah. good, uh, a good sort of analysis. Like there is, there is definitely an aspect of this that is like, like it provided me with a good, platform to say a lot of things that I've wanted to say that I generally kind of always am in a constant state of wanting to say about the way that we evaluate songs because as I'm sure any of our listeners have noticed I yeah. get really annoyed at the idea of objectivity <laughs> in music and I think that you know yeah. this allowed for a framework to sort of apply what to be clear like is not any sort of academic rigor, but has the appearance of academic rigor. Yeah. Um, and then sort of like come to the same conclusions. 
Yeah. And I mean, sort of to pull the curtain back for people a little bit, like this is, that's classic video essay. Stuff, yes. Where you just, you have, you have a framing device. Oh, you, you have like thoughts and ideas and opinions that you keep coming back to. And you have a framing device and you just sort of take a look at what your thoughts are and see which of those you can fit into this framing yes. device in a way that lets you tell a story. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think for me, the, the most interesting thing about it is, is that it's a very clever framing device to then tell your own stories through. And I think that, yeah, that's sort of similar to a lot of my, like, things that I do, especially, especially outside my song analyses, but even there where I'll just be like, this is a thing I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, I'm, I'm just gonna, just gonna shoehorn it into yes. here somehow. Yeah. And, you know, and if, you know, if you write it well, it works. Yeah. I think, I think that's a big thing is like the, it's definitely a piece that had an agenda. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But again, they all do. Exactly. That's, that's just how, how art works. <laughs> and and yeah, no. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Art. on that, um, any more thoughts? Or are you good to call it an app? I, th I think I'm... I mean, I'm not good to do that, <laughs> to be clear. Uh, I'm, I'm never calling it You're that. You're never calling it an app? How about how no. about an episode? Can we call it an episode? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I'm comfortable calling this an episode. I don't really have that many additional thoughts you just don't uh, want to call it that i need to get out there yes no i i have to draw the line somewhere all right yeah well this was really fun for some reason i'm choosing here <laughs> and i'm glad you uh i'm glad you decided to you suggested this because it's definitely something yeah. that i've i i feel like i wanted to talk more about this list because i think yeah. it's something where i think i did an okay job with the video but i think it is it is a topic that is pretty well suited to the podcast yeah. as a format yeah that was part of part of what i was thinking and i also just think it's a really interesting discussion of craft right yes. like i think that a lot of this is and this is the thing we, we talked about doing like when we first started ghost notes was just like you know if one of us puts out an like a video that the other is interested yeah. in we can just talk about it i made you listen to me talk about chord loops at one point but we usually don't yeah we usually talk about our own stuff <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, that, that just sort of, like, I saw this and I was like, this feels like a Ghost Notes episode. Yeah. I think it should be one. And... And now it is. You know, yeah. Now it is. And you listen to all of it, and you're still listening. Good for you. I assume. If, if you haven't, then you won't know that I was wrong, so... And you're you're not going to be listening in three seconds, because it's going to be over. Bye. Bye. <laughs>